0: Book 7 chapters 3 and 4 of the Rise of David Levinsky This is a LibriVox recording All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain For more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org The Rise of David Levinsky by Abraham Kahan Book 7 My Temple chapter 3 the majority of students at the college of the city of new york was already made up of jewish boys mostly from the tenement houses one such student often called at the cloak shop in which i was employed and in which his father a tough-looking fellow with a sandy beard a former teamster was one of the pressers a classmate of this boy was supported by an aunt a spinster who made good wages as a bunch maker in a cigar factory to make an educated man of her nephew was the great ambition of her life all this made me feel as though i were bound to that college with the ties of kinship two of my other shopmates had sons at high school the east side was full of poor jews wage earners peddlers grocers salesmen insurance agents who would beggar themselves to give their children a liberal education then, too, thousands of our workingmen attended public evening school, while many others took lessons at home. The ghetto rang with a clamor of knowledge. To save up some money and prepare for college seemed to be the most natural thing for me to do. I said to myself that I must begin to study for it without delay. But that was impossible, and it was quite some time before I took up the course which the presser's boy had laid out for me. During the first three months, I literally had no time to open a book, nor was that all. My work as a cloakmaker had become a passion with me, so much so that even on Saturdays when the shop was closed, I would scarcely do any reading. Instead, I would seek the society of other cloakmakers with whom I might talk shop. I was developing speed rather than skill at my sewing machine but this question of speed afforded exercise to my brain. It did not take me long to realize that the number of cloaks or jackets which one turned out in a given length of time was largely a matter of method and system. I perceived that Joe, who was accounted a fast hand, would take up the various parts of a garment in a certain order, calculated to reduce to a minimum the amount of time lost in passing from section to section. So I watched him intently, studying his system with every fiber of my being. Nor did I content myself with imitating his processes. I was forever pondering the problem and introducing little improvements of my own. I was making a science of it. It was not merely physical exertion. It was a source of intellectual interest as well. I was wrapped up in it if I happened to meet a cloak operator who was noted for extraordinary speed, I would feel like an ambitious musician meeting a famous virtuoso. Some cloak operators were artists. I certainly was not one of them. I admired their work and envied them, but I lacked the artistic patience and the dexterity essential to workmanship of a high order. Much to my chagrin, I was a born bungler. But then I possessed physical strength. Nervous vitality, method, and inventiveness, all the elements that go to make up speed. I was progressing with unusual rapidity. Joe criticized my work severely, often calling me botcher. But I knew that this was chiefly intended to veil his satisfaction at the growing profits that my work was yielding him. I now earned about $10 a week, of which I spent about 5 saving the rest for the next season of idleness. At last that season set in. There was not a stroke of work in the shop. I was so absorbed in my new vocation that I would pass my evenings in a cloakmaker's haunt, a café on Delancey Street, where I never tired talking sleeves, pockets, stitches, trimmings, and the like. There was a good deal of card-playing in the place, but somehow I never succumbed to that temptation but then under the influence of some of the fellows i met there i developed a considerable passion for the jewish theatre these young men were what is known on the east side as patriots that is devoted admirers of some actor or actress and members of his or her voluntary clack several of the other frequenters were also interested in the stage or at least in the gossip of it so that on the whole there was as much talk of plays and players as there was of cloaks and cloakmakers. Our shop discussion certainly never reached the heat that usually characterized our debates on things theatrical. The most ardent of the patriots was a young contractor named Mendels. He attended nearly every performance in which his favorite actor had a part, selling dozens of tickets for his benefit performances and usually losing considerable sums on these sales loading him with presents and often running his errands. I once saw Mendel's in a violent quarrel with a man who had scoffed at his idol. Mendel's younger brother, Jake, fascinated me by his appearance, and we became great chums. He was the handsomest fellow I ever had seen, with a fine head of dark brown hair, classic features, and large, soft blue eyes. Too soft and too blue, perhaps his was a manly face and figure and his voice was a manly a beautiful baso but this masculine exterior contained an effeminate psychology in my heart i pronounced him a calf and when i had discovered the english word sissy i thought that it just fitted him yet i adored him and even looked up to him all because of his good looks he was a talmudist like myself and we had much in common also regarding our dreams of the future oh i am so glad i have met you i once said to him i am glad too he returned flushing i found that he blushed rather too frequently which confirmed my notion of him as a sissy like most handsome men he bestowed a great deal of time on his personal appearance he never uttered a foul word nor a harsh one if he heard a cloak-maker tell an indecent story, he would look down, smiling and blushing like a girl. Formerly he had been employed in his brother's shop, while now he earned his living by soliciting and collecting for a life-insurance company. CHAPTER Four. Jake Mendels was a devotee of Madame Klesmer, the leading Jewish actress of that period which by the way was practically the opening chapter in the interesting history of the yiddish stage in america madame Klesmer was a tragedian and a prima donna at once a usual combination in those days one friday evening we were in the gallery of her theatre the play was an historical opera and she was playing the part of a biblical princess it was the closing scene of an act the whole company was on stage Swaying sidewise and singing with the princess her head in a halo of electric light in the center Jake was feasting his large blue eyes on her Presently he turned to me with the air of one confiding a secret Wouldn't you like to kiss her and Swinging around again he resumed feasting his blue eyes on the princess. I Have seen prettier women than she I replied that fellow listen she is a dear, all the same. You don't know a good thing when you see it, Levinsky. Are you in love with her? Shh! Do let me listen. When the curtain fell, he made me applaud her. There were several curtain calls, during all of which he kept applauding her furiously, shouting the prima donna's name at the top of his voice, and winking to me imploringly to do the same. When quiet had been restored at last, I returned to the subject. Are you in love with her sure he answered without blushing as if a fellow could help it if she let me kiss her little finger I should be the happiest man in the world and if she let you kiss her cheek I should go crazy and if she let you kiss her lips what's the use asking idle questions would you like to kiss her neck you ask me foolish questions you are in love with her i declared reflectively i should say i was it was a unique sort of love for he wanted me also to be in love with her if you are not in love with her you must have a heart of iron or else your soul is dry as a raisin with which he took to analyzing the prima donna's charms going into raptures over her eyes smiles gestures manner of opening her mouth and her swing and step as she walked over the stage no i don't care for her i replied you are a peculiar fellow if i did fall in love i said by way of meeting him halfway i should choose mrs sagalovich she is a thousand times prettier than mrs klesmer tut tut mrs sagalovich was certainly prettier than the prima donna but she played unimportant parts so the notion of one's falling in love with her seemed queer to jake that night i had an endless chain of dreams in every one of which madame Klesmer was the central figure when i awoke in the morning i fell in love with her and was overjoyed when i saw jake mendels at dinner i said to him with the air of one bringing glad news do you know i am in love with her with whom with Mrs. Sigalovich, ah, oh, I had forgotten all about her. I mean, Madame Klesmer. I said self-consciously. Somehow, my love for the actress did not interfere with my longing thoughts of Matilda. I asked myself no questions, and so we went on loving jointly, Jake and I. The companionship of our passion apparently stimulating our romance, as companionship at a meal stimulates the appetite of the diners each of us seemed to be infatuated with madame klesmer yet the community of this feeling far from arousing mutual jealousy in us seemed to strengthen the ties of our friendship we would hum her songs in duet recite her lines compare notes on our dreams of happiness with her one day we composed a love letter to her a long epistle full of biblical and homespun poetry which we copied jointly his lines alternating with mine and which we signed your two lovelorn slaves whose hearts are panting for a look of your star-like eyes jacob and david we mailed the letter without affixing any address the next evening we were in the theatre and when she appeared on the stage and shot a glance to the gallery jake nudged me violently but she does not know we are in the gallery i argued she must think we are in the orchestra hearts are good guessers. Guessers nothing. Shh, let's listen. Madame Klesmer was playing the part of a girl in a modern Russian town. She declaimed her lines, speaking like a prophetess in ancient Israel, and I liked it extremely. I was fully aware that it was unnatural for a girl in a modern Russian town to speak like a prophetess in ancient Israel, but that was just why I liked it i thought it perfectly proper that people on the stage should not talk as they would off the stage i thought that this unnatural speech of theirs was one of the principal things an audience paid for the only actor who spoke like a human being was the comedian and this too seemed to be perfectly proper for a comedian was a fellow who did not take his art seriously and so i thought that this natural talk of his was part of his fun making I thought it was something like a clown burlesquing the Old Testament by reading it not in the ancient intonations of the synagogue, but in the plain, conversational accents of everyday life. During the intermission, in the course of our talk about Madame Klesmer, Jake said, Do you know, Levinsky, I don't think you really love her. I love her as much as you, and more, too, I retorted. How much do you love her? Would you walk from New York to Philadelphia if she wanted you to do so? Why would she? What good would it do her? But suppose she does want it. How can I suppose such nonsense? Well, she might just want to see how much you love her. A nice test, that. Oh, well. She might just get that kind of notion. Women are liable to get any kind of notion, don't you know? Well— "'If Madame Klesmer got that kind of notion, I should tell her to walk to Philadelphia herself. "'Then you don't love her?' "'I love her as much as you do. "'But if she took it into her head to make a fool of me, I should send her to the Eighty Devils.' "'He winced. "'And you call that love, don't you?' he said, with a sneer in the corner of his pretty mouth. "'As for me, I should walk to Boston if she wanted me to.' Even if she did not promise to let you kiss her? Even if she did not. And if she did? I should walk to Chicago. And if she promised to be your mistress? Oh, what's the use talking that way? He protested, blushing. Aren't you shy? A regular bride to be, I declare. Stop, he said, coloring once again. It dawned on me that he was probably chaste and searching his face with a mocking look i said i bet you are still innocent leave me alone please he retorted softly i have hit it then i importuned him with a great sense of my own superiority do let me alone will you i just want you to tell me whether you are innocent or not it's none of your business of course you are and if i am is it a disgrace WHO SAYS IT IS? I DESISTED. HE BECAME MORE ATTRACTIVE THAN EVER TO ME. NEVERTHELESS I MADE REPEATED ATTEMPTS TO DEPRAVE HIM. HIS CHASTITY BOTHERED ME. THE IDEA OF BREAKING IT DOWN BECAME AN IRRESISTIBLE TEMPTATION. I WOULD RIDICULE HIM FOR A SISSY, APPEAL TO HIM IN THE NAME OF HIS HEALTH, BEG HIM AS ONE DOES FOR A PERSONAL FAVOR, ALL IN VAIN he spoke better english than i with more ease and in that pretty basso of his which i envied he had never read dickens or any other english author but he was familiar with some subjects to which i was a stranger he was well grounded in arithmetic knew some geography and now with a view of qualifying for the study of medicine he was preparing with the aid of a private teacher for the regent's examination in algebra geometry english composition american and english history i thought he did not study deeply enough that he took more real interest in his collars and neckties the shine of his shoes or the hang of his trousers than he did in his algebra or history by his cleanliness and tidiness he reminded me of naphtali which indeed had something to do with my attachment for him my relations toward him echoed with the feelings i used to have for the reticent omniscient boy of abner's court and with the hoarse studious young talmudist with whom i would famish in company he had neither naphtali's brains nor his individuality yet i looked up to him and was somewhat under his influence i adopted many of the english phrases he was in the habit of using and tried to imitate his way of dressing as a consequence, he would sometimes assume a patronizing tone with me, addressing me with a good-natured sneer which I liked in spite of myself. We made a compact to speak nothing but English, and to a considerable extent we kept it. End of chapter 4. Recording by James K. White. Chula Vista.